morning. So I have an image that I want to share with you this morning. Um, before I do that, I want to remind you that every week we have a resource uh, for you in the Bible app. Um, and experience tells me that once I show you the image I'm going to show you, some, many of you are going to know, want to know where you can get it. Uh, it's in the Bible app. That's how you can get it. So I want to just talk a little bit about the Bible app. Every once in a while we need to do this just so people who might be new to us know what we're doing. Uh, that's what the Bible app looks like. Go wherever you get your apps and um, type in the word Bible. This should be the one that, to- that comes to the top of the list. It's extremely popular. Um, you will uh, then uh, download it, turn on location services, then click on the more icon. And I discovered this week someone who said, I don't even know what the more icon looks like. So there is what the more icon looks like. And then you click on the events. And that's the, is that good? Okay. And that is the little icon beside events that will help you find it. When you do that, you're going to see a list of several churches in the area who have live events. And ours, if you have location services on, should be right there at the top. Because, let me see, you're here. And it knows that. Which may be creepy, but it helps in this particular time. So do that. What you're going to find there is what I would call a church bulletin on steroids. Lots of information. Uh, everything uh, we've heard about in life at ECC so far, and ways to connect to the church, ways to get involved, ways to, ways to stay updated, and more. And as promised, you will also find this image, or at least a link to this image, uh, that uh, Pastor Chuck shared with me last year. And I liked it so much that I bought it and framed it for my office. <clears throat> this is an image that depicts all of the cross-references from the Old Testament into the New Testament in our Bibles. Each of the, get this, 63,779 arcs that you see in that image represents one cross-reference. The colors and the sizes of the arcs correspond to the distance between the references. The longest, uh, the the lines at the bottom that you can't tell, but they're, they're gray and they're white, they separate the books of the Bible, The longest one in the very center there is Psalm 119. These are chapter lines. Longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. There it is in the middle. The credit for this goes to uh, who created this was Chris uh, Harrison and Christoph Romhild. It is a beautiful representation, and it tells us something important. If we want to fully understand the New Testament, we simply cannot ignore the Old Testament. If we want to fully understand the New Testament, we simply cannot ignore the Old Testament. The Bible is a diverse book of many books, a library of sorts. But it is, when it comes down to it, a unified story. And this image tells us an amazing story of the sovereignty of God and the work of God's Spirit. The Bible was written over 1,500 to 1,600 years by more than 40 authors, not to mention compilers and editors, and yet all of it points to Jesus. We're going to see several of these arcs make an appearance in today's passage uh, from 1 Peter. The passage we're looking at consists of only seven verses. Not only are there quite a few uh, Old Testament references in today's passage, but there is also a, a lot of imagery within these references, and it is rich and instructive. The most Often repeated image in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, is that of stones. But that image, as we'll see as we walk through it, transforms as the passage unfolds. It changes its form a bit. 
Peter stacks image on top of image on top of image, not unlike stacking stones to build a wall or a building. After laying for us a foundation of the gifts that we have received, when we come to faith in Christ, Peter begins to build on that foundation. Since you have been born again, since you have been purified from sin through the saving word of the gospel, since you are becoming a community of people who love one another deeply from the heart, and since you are learning what it means to crave the things that make for transformation, you are now ready to pursue God's purposes in the world. Verses 4 and 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter identifies Jesus as the living stone, and then he transforms the image, not for the last time, not only is Jesus the living stone, but we also are living stones, or like living stones. As living stones who have come to Jesus, we are being built into a spiritual house, which could also be translated as a spiritual temple or a temple of the Spirit. Put another way, we are becoming a temple. We are becoming the temple of God, as will soon become clear. Now, we've talked about this temple imagery a few times before, but let me quickly uh, review it. Uh, in the beginning, God dwelt with human beings in the Garden of Eden with creation as his temple. Then God gave instructions to build the tabernacle, a mobile temple of a sort, a tent. That was followed by a more permanent temple, one made of stone. In this way, God could dwell with his people. And then we get to the New Testament. John 1.14 tells us that Jesus, who was identified as the Word, who was God, became flesh and dwelt, or more literally, tabernacled among us. <clears throat> so Jesus became the tabernacle, the place where God dwelt among us. Then when Jesus, in John chapter 2, turns over the tables and clears the temple courts, he was asked about his authority to, to do so, and Jesus didn't really answer their question, which he seems to like to do sometimes. He replied, look, you destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. <clears throat> John 2, 20 and 21. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. So God dwelt in the Garden of Eden. Then God dwelt in the tabernacle and then the temple and then Jesus. But the progression continues when the Apostle Paul asks in 1 Corinthians chapter, 1, verse 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple <clears throat> and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? And then in today's passage, Peter echoes this with a, this uh, we are the temple language and imagery when he likens us to living stones being built into a spiritual house, a temple of the Spirit of God. God now lives in us as Christ's church. But Peter further transforms the metaphor. Verse 5. You also, as he said, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are, we are not only the temple, we are the priesthood who serve in the temple. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God by which he likely means that we offer ourselves, our very lives. We surrender to God, and in doing so, we bear witness to the good news 
of Jesus Christ in the world. Peter then elaborates on his original imagery of Jesus as the living stone upon which we are built. He fleshes this imagery out a bit, and he uses three passages. Here we go. We've already dipped into the Old Testament a little bit, but now we're going to really uh, jump into it in earnest. He uses three passages uh, from the Old Testament, each passage further transforming this imagery of stones a little more deeply. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Peter is quoting there from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, the living stone, Jesus, becomes the cornerstone of Isaiah's prophecy. Now, initially, that passage and the way Peter uses it here might sound comforting. It's a chosen and precious cornerstone. We can put our trust in him and we will not be put to shame. It sounds like an encouragement for those of us who have done this, that we have trusted in this cornerstone. But the real point of the passage, if we were to go and read all of Isaiah 28, is judgment, not comfort. So much so that just a few verses later on in Isaiah 28, verse 19, we read this. The understanding of this message will bring sheer terror. So not comfort then. Isaiah's point and Peter's point in borrowing from him is that yes, God has indeed placed a cornerstone. But some have not trusted in the cornerstone. Some have rejected the cornerstone. And by this, Peter is referring to the people of Israel, and in particular, their leadership. And with that, he turns to another passage, this time from Psalm 118, verse 22. I'm going to read it from a a different translation, the NRSV uh, translation. It's actually now the NRSVUE translation. (laughs) The NRSV updated edition. I don't know what it's going to do with the next one, but... Uh, because they get something here that, I, there, there's some controversy about how best to translate this, but I do think there's something here. They get something in the NRSV that the NIV does not get. This honor, then, is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the very head of the corner. That's really quite literally what it says. The very head of the corner. The NIV uses the word cornerstone there again, but it literally just says head of the corner, which is also referred to as the capstone. First stone to be laid in a foundation or in a construction of a building is the cornerstone. The last stone to be placed is the capstone, the head of the corner. Jesus is the first and the last stone to be laid, in other words. But this capstone has been rejected, Psalm 118, verse 22 says. Peter has one more transformation yet in store for this image. So now, the stone the builders rejected has become the corner, and then he goes on and says in verse 8, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. This quotation comes to us from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And speaking of God, in that passage, Isaiah writes this, He will be a holy place, he, God, will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall, and for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Also, not terribly comforting. God will be the stumbling stone, both a trap and a snare for the people of Jerusalem. In Christ, God has become a holy place for his people, but if they do not accept him, he will cause them to stumble and fall, or they will cause themselves to stumble and fall. The living stone, the cornerstone, the capstone, And now the stumbling stone. 
Is it any wonder that this stone image evolved into a symbol of the coming for the coming and the hoped for Messiah? So Peter is in all this work, this pulling from the Old Testament, this layering and transforming the images for one reason. He wants to remind people what has happened to the leadership of the people of Israel because they have rejected Christ so that he can now make an important and controversial comparison. Verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people. You who have not rejected the cornerstone. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These two last verses are loaded with references and allusions to the Old Testament. Uh, Scholar Christopher J.H. Wright says that virtually every phrase in those two verses, virtually every phrase has at least one Old Testament reference attached to it. And that is not just the, the, the phrases that I've highlighted. Every phrase. Every term that Peter applies to the church, which are the ones that I have highlighted, is an Old Testament term referring to the people of Israel. Most of these terms come from Exodus chapter 19, where the people of God are at the foot of Mount Sinai, having left slavery in Egypt about 45 days prior. Moses is about to climb up the mountain, mountain where he will receive the law of God. Before that, Moses meets with God, and God tells him to say this to the people of Israel. Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites, he says to Moses. The community of people who, follow, who now follow Jesus are, are like the people of Israel. They too are chosen. They too are God's special possession. They too are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Israel's calling has now encompassed the church. That is not to say that the church has replaced Israel. It is to say, as the Apostle Paul puts it over in Romans 11, that we who have come to know Christ have now been grafted onto the olive tree that, is, that was and is the people of Israel. And that carries with it an incredible calling and responsibility. But Peter is not done making comparisons yet. In the prophet Hosea, chapter 1, God tells Hosea to go and marry a promiscuous woman named Gomer. Could have chosen a better name. Gomer stands in for the unfaithful and adulterous people of Israel in their relationship with God. Gomer and Hosea have several children to whom God assigns strange names. Their daughter is named Lo-Ruhama, which means not loved. And their son named Lo-Ami, which means not my people. These are two kids that are going to have an identity crisis later in life. Hosea chapters 1 and 2 are, are they're very much about judgment. God speaks sternly about what he will do to his people because of their sin. But then there is this strange Beautiful plot twist that happens in Isaiah 2, almost about halfway down. 
God's tone toward Israel, his unfaithful wife changes. Hosea 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. The wilderness is a, is a, is a place in the Old Testament that is full of potential and full of complexity. It is a scary place, but it is also the place where God most often works among his people. Therefore, I am now going to allure her, Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And that's just the beginning of that section. Yes, God promises a time of punishment for her rebellion, for her worship of false gods, but in the end, he speaks tenderly to her. Later in the chapter, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. This calls to mind Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where Paul reminds us that God's, it is God's kindness that is intended to lead us to repentance. Yes, there is punishment. Yes, there is consequence for sin. But in the end, it is God's mercy. It is God's kindness. It is God's tenderness that leads Israel to repentance. And then right at the end of Hosea chapter 2, God recalls the, the son and the daughter who were born to Hosea and Gomer in chapter 1. Hosea 2.23 I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. The daughter is no longer not loved. The son is no longer not my people. For God has reversed their names. The relationship is restored. But why does God pursue such an obstinate people? And what does it say to those of us today who run from and rebel against God? God does not give up on us. God pursues us into the wilderness where he will speak tenderly to us. God pursues us out of love. God pursues us because he wants to be in relationship with us. And if we let him, God will change our names too. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so Peter, again, ties it all back to Israel's story. He borrows there from Hosea chapters 1 and 2. We, like the people of Israel long ago, have been pursued by God. In Christ Jesus, God has spoken tenderly to us. God has made us his people, and he is our God. And God has said in no uncertain terms that we have now received mercy, that we are deeply loved. And we are now what the Apostle Paul refers to in Ephesians 2.19 as fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. God pursues the people of Israel because he loves them, of course, but God also pursues the people of Israel because they have always been a part of God's rescue plan. And now you and I are a part of that plan too. And he goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. When God's call to Abram and Sarah asked them to leave their land, to leave their family, to leave their people and go to the land that God would show them. 
If Abram and Sarah, Sarai did that, God promised that their descendants would be as countless as the, as the grains of sand on the seashore and as numerous as the stars in the sky. And God promised to bless their descendants and that their descendants would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. What was true of Israel is true of us. That's Peter's point. We have been grafted onto the chosen people because God loves us. But also because God has a mission and God's mission has a church. We, like Israel, will be the vehicles of God's blessing on all the peoples of the earth. Peter then sums it up again, going back to verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter will say more about this in next week's passage, but for now. It is about worshiping God corporately and publicly, like we do each week here in this room and online. And it is about the way we live our lives beyond these walls. To declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into light is about worshiping publicly, corporately in this place. And it is about how we live our lives beyond these walls. Years ago, I realized that if we allow for eight hours of sleep for each of us, which I realize is a generous allowance, but let's, let's go with it. And if we allow for people who regularly take part in worship on Sunday mornings or, and are a part of a life group, a part of a ministry team, whatever, and the time that they commit to being in church or in ECC context, if you, if you look at all that, the time that they're in those contexts, in those environments, makes up about 3% of our waking hours. 3%. The other 97% of our waking hours, your waking hours, are spent outside of these walls. I'm here all the time. Your waking hours are spent outside of these walls, among many people who do not yet know the good news about Jesus Christ. And it dawned on me, if we are not training people to live as faithful disciples in the 97% of their waking hours spent outside of this place, we are failing in the mission. That's where you spend most of your time. All right, the 3% is important, but we have got to train ourselves, train one another to live faithfully in the 97% of our waking hours outside of these walls. And no surprise, this takes us to our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence. We Gentiles, non-Jews, we, we have been welcomed into God's kingdom by the life, death, and work of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. We are being transformed into Christ's likeness, what we have called Christiformity. We are becoming more like Jesus because God loves us, because that's what we were made for, was to bear the image of God in Christ but also because we have a mission, we have a purpose. We are to be the presence of Christ to others in our community, in our world. Put another way, we are to love our neighbors in word and deed. We are to be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. We're going to talk more about this next week. What I want us to consider this morning is what these names and these phrases that Peter is borrowing from Israel, what do they mean for us today? How, how might these last two verses 
in our passage from 1 Peter chapter 2, how might these last two verses speak to our group identity? How might each of these last two verses inform and shape how you are going to live your life this day, this week, this month? So I invite you to join me in a bit of a prayer practice as a way just to kind of respond to this passage. We're going to spend a little bit of time in silence. And then I'm simply going to slowly read verses 9 and 10, three times over, each time from a different translation. I'm going to read it slowly, I'm going to pause in between, and I want you just to listen and see what you hear, see what you notice, and whatever you hear, perhaps God is whispering something to you or nudging you, whatever you notice, turn it into a prayer. Maybe take it with you out of this place and pray it the rest of the day or the rest of the week. Pray for yourself, pray for your household, pray for us as a congregation. Whatever these, these names, these phrases might mean to you. Join me with just a moment of silence and then I'll begin to read. And after that I'll close in prayer. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have receive mercy. But you are the ones chosen by God, chosen for the high calling of priestly work, Chosen to be a holy people, God's instruments to do his work and speak out for him. To tell others of the night and day difference he made for you. From nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. But you are God's chosen generation, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his peculiar people. All the old titles of God's people now belong to you. It is for you now to demonstrate the goodness of him who has called you out of darkness into his amazing light. In the past, you were not a people at all. Now you are the people of God. In the past, you had no experience of his mercy, but now it is intimately yours.
God, we invite you to accomplish in each of us and in us as this body of believers in this place at this time. Accomplish in us what you want to accomplish. Make of us what you want to make of us, Lord. Help us to catch a vision for all of these wonderful images and names, living stones built on the foundation of the living stone, a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your special possession, God, so that we might truly, in every way possible, declare your praises for what you have done for us and what you are still doing. Lord, help us to take the love and the mercy we have received and may it overflow upon those we meet every day. Help us to become a church, Lord God, a community, a congregation, a place of faith where these things are all true of us. We know it and we live into it. We pray, God, that in and through us you would, first of all, grow your likeness, and in and through us you would bring others to that likeness, that we might fulfill the role of priests in your kingdom. pray all these things in the strong and powerful and very present name of Jesus, who is our Savior, our Teacher, and our Lord. Amen.